information, and perspectives. Thank you for listening. WERU is grassroots community radio that depends on listener support and volunteer power. To donate or volunteer, please call 469-6600, email info at weru.org, or pledge online at weru.org. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and in conjunction with WERU, our community radio station. My name is CJ Walk, I use he, him pronouns, and I am the host for today's episode of Common Ground Radio. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the second Thursday each month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU. Previous editions of our show and other great shows can be found in the archive section of the WERU website at www.weru.org, as well as on the WERU app. For today's show, we are listening to a presentation on carbon farming and carbon sequestration given by Dr. Gladys Sinati of the Rodale Institute. This presentation was recorded at, the, at MOFCA's 2021 Farmer to Farmer Conference. Dr. Zanati discusses carbon sequestration, the various ways of managing farmland to build soil carbon, and the ecological benefits associated with carbon sequestration, such as an increase in soil health, plant growth and yield, and overall human health. So we all know that soil is a dynamic natural resource and it is made up of minerals. Minerals, they made up about 45% of the total soil and with equal quantities of air and water. The 5% uh, of that soil is about organic matter. Now this organic matter, it could be between one to five, depends on the quality of the soil. The mineral matter, we know that it has sand, silk, and clay. The sand are the coarser sizes, and silk medium and clay is the fine uh, size. There are different proportions, and there are mixes in any kind of mineral soil, what makes those soil classes, and we call them textural soils. So this is a, a triangle where we use usually to learn about which one is how much percent of silt or clay or sand, and then we come up and we find what type of soil we have. Soil organic matter, which we talked about, it, it is between 1 to 5 percent by weight, but it is small, but it also has a big uh, impact on our uh, environment and the ecosystem. In fact, the soil organic matter is made up mainly of three different components, and people have used them uh, and called them in a different way, but maybe it is in a way that people can relate to them. So one component, they call it the living, and it can be about 10 to 15% of that 5% dead or active. And sometimes I say, well, how it can be active if you are dead? But this is something it means about what is the activity happening there. Uh, very dead, meaning passive. So it is up to 80%. And the location of all these components of the organic matter can be in different uh, particles, uh, pores. So on this right side, you could see that the living includes the roots of the plants and they are living and the soil organisms that are alive and occupying the aggregates and mainly the bigger, medium to large aggregates. And so they are on uh, between those two types of aggregates and inside mainly the large. So they have the movement going from one area to the other. The active or what we call it dead, it is mainly what has been uh, just cut 
or uh, uh, the, the biomass that was cut or the cover crop was cut or anything or the leaf just dropped down. So it is a fresh and partially decomposed residue in these spaces and occupies also the same area where the living. So they, those two components, they go back and forth. And so they are mostly together in the same aggregates where they occupy. However, the passive, and the passive, it's very dead, and what sometimes people call it the humus. It is made of molecules and fragments that are dead microorganisms. So this is where everything is dead. It is already uh, no more uh, decomposition is happening there. And also they are held into the clay particles and the silt. So these are the areas because they are very small and they are very tight. So they are not uh, available in the macro and the uh, medium size aggregates. They are uh, put into uh, the smallest spaces. And so these are not uh, available for microorganisms to chew on them or decompose them. These are where the storage of the soil organic matter is really staying for many, many years. So let's take each part and talk about it. So here, the first one is the living part. Is there where you have microorganisms, you have plant roots, you have insects, you have all the earthworms and large animals. So except the plant roots, they use and feed on the plant residues and manures for energy. However, the plant roots, they have a different way of using energy. Those ones, they use the plant residues and manures. That's why I said there is a, a connection between the living and the dead uh, compartments. In fact, the sticky material, the glues that the fungi, they secrete along with the uh, skin of the earthworms, they bind to the soil particles, and that's what gives our stabilization of our soil, and the soil would be a good structure. That's where it starts. The earthworms and some of the fungi and plant roots, they produce also channels. So those, in addition, make also more of the infiltration to go easier and will help to have aeration. That's where the aeration and the water will be improved in that section where the macro and the medium particles are really occupied by those living parts. For the dead ones, which we call it the active, it is easily decomposed fraction, meaning the fresh residues that we have from either the microorganism or residue of insects or earthworms or even an old plant root that has been decomposing crop residues, anything that falls leaf uh, at this time, recently added manures. These are the ones that just recently in the process of decomposition. This active fraction is the main supply for the food of microorganisms, insects, and earthworms in the living part of the soil. The very dead, which is the humus, it includes organic substances that are difficult to decompose and that they we call them recalcitrant or resistant to any decomposition. And these stores for many, many, many years. So those ones in the, uh, in the humus or in the very dead, they are protected against any uh, organisms and they will stay there for many years. And humus as well will hold into some essential nutrients, not only uh, the, the material, but also nutrients in there. And they store them and uh, produce them at slow release. In fact, the, the beauty about humus, when you have more of that, that's where it holds to pesticides and heavy metals meaning it will not be uh, given in, in an area where uh, that plant will be taking it up quickly because it is extremely slow over many years to, to have those pesticides or heavy metals that can be toxic to the plant. 
the humus can be playing also a different role in improving soils, especially those that are like the clay, that have poor drainage, they have so much compaction. The humus can reduce that compaction because it becomes like a sponge and making it more aerated. However, the sandy soils that are bigger size, they are coarse, and they have so much aeration, you want to have more water holding into it, it becomes also like the sponge that it is really keeping that water for the sandy soils. I want to bring also this idea of charcoal and char because people have been talking about it as one of the methods to do carbon sequestration or carbon farming. So it is another type of organic matter for sure. It resulted long, long time uh, from past fires that occurred naturally. And many soils, you might find here and there some pieces of charcoal. In fact, as an example, the soil of Saskatchewan in Canada have relatively high amounts of char. And these are prairies that have been burnt naturally over time, long period of time. They are really good. They are stable and they keep the carbon and they have high carbon uh, cation exchange capacity. And they support biological activity by providing only the habitat. So, again, they support the biological activity by providing a habitat. But they do not provide them with food. So, it is very important to understand that if we are only providing a habitat, they need food, these microorganisms. And to do that, not only if you feel that charcoal can be added, if it is available, and you think it would be part of it, because they don't have access to food through it, but you have to add something such as plant residues or compost that will really help to move that cycle of nutrient cycling and building of more of the uh, aggregates and more of the uh, stability. Thus, the carbon and carbon organic matter, we talk about them in a way that sometimes we say, oh, well, carbon or organic matter, and people use them uh, interchangeably. In fact, carbon is the building block of the organic molecules. And also organic matter includes, in addition to carbon, other nutrients. So we need to make sure that we understand which one we are using when we talk about assessing the source. But we know that the carbon is strongly related to the organic matter, meaning if I assess my soil and send it to the lab and they say, well, it is this soil here is high in carbon, but this field is low in carbon, I could understand it is correlation that, well, if it is high in carbon, meaning it is high, going to be high in organic matter and the other way around. So usually what we say that if I want to assess and I have carbon, I multiply it by two, and that will give me what would be an organic matter in my soil. There is another form that it is also considered a form of carbon, and this is the limestone, that it is natural occurring, the limestone, which is made of calcium carbonate because it has carbon, oxygen, and calcium. And those are available in the glaciated areas and the semi-arid regions. Unlike that, in Florida, where, as an example, in humid climates, you will see that there are more than only the organic carbon molecule or the organic carbon that it is equal to total carbon. They have what it is called the inorganic carbon. And so in that case, we cannot just go and multiply that number by two and say, oh, this is how much organic matter. So it is a totally different calculations for that. Thus, we understand now that soil is the largest stock of the organic carbon. And we know also that carbon is the primary component play an extremely key role in the ecosystem because it can enhance water holding capacity, as we have seen. 
It can uh, do nutrient retention availability and provide stability for the soil over many, many years. Thus, organic matter contains about four times carbon as living plants and carbon stored in all the soils. It's about two to three times what you can find in the atmosphere. So meaning that it is a great box where we can store that excess of carbon or carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And so most of the time we will have most of that carbon. If it is stored, it would be two to three times what it is in the atmosphere as carbon. So soil organic matter is considered the foundation for healthy and productive soils. Despite it is very small amount, yet it influences all soil properties and makes it more fertile. There are research that done in Maryland, and they tested that they were increasing the uh, percent of organic matter, and they found that if they increase it by 1%, their increase in corn per acre increased to 80 bushels. That's with one increase of organic matter. That's really important how the fertility can improve the yield of the uh, and the quality of any crop that we produce. Under normal conditions, people would be, as well as livestock and microorganisms, they will use energy inside that carbon and they convert it, meaning they take the starch, they take the sugar and convert them into another energy using the oxygen in that case and producing uh, heat and carbon dioxide. However, the extraction of huge amounts of sequestered fossil carbon as fossil fuel tipped that uh, balance in the carbon cycle. And so now we are having more dense forms of carbon when burned, released to the atmosphere and in the form of CO2. The carbon dioxide emissions and other gases such as nitrous oxide and methane, they are becoming uh, the talk of the world for many, many years. And now we have seen that anytime the solar energy hits the the uh, the earth and then the rays are used by plants and then they or hits the surface soil it is um, going back but as an infrared usually if we don't have this the blanket that it is caused by the carbon dioxide and other gases those infrareds will leave and will not be impacting to make more much heat but now those um gases are uh, really uh, making like a blanket, keeping that uh, hot air, infrared inside and heating our planet. And that really is going to cause a lot of trouble. Although if you increase the carbon dioxide, the plants will grow more and faster, but that has impact on the on our frozen uh, ice places and also on the wind and the climate change. Not to mention also that any time these oceans that also they have they capture also that uh, carbon dioxide, they the uh, if they have more of these levels of carbon dioxide beyond what is normally there they will start to be acidic and the acidity will um, uh, put the marine life in danger. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio and today we are listening to a presentation on carbon farming and carbon sequestration given by Dr. Gladys Zanati of the Rodale Institute. This presentation was recorded at MOFCA's 2021 Farmer to Farmer Conference. So, for example, here, as I mentioned, that the climate change impacts the air. It makes it warm. You will have a glacier, the glaciers melting, thawing of the frozen soil. So we will not have like a certain period of uh, uh, winter time where the soil uh, is uh, uh, frozen and it is cold air. And so that we usually use it as a a method in a way that it is like natural way of killing the pests and uh, not let them continue. 
more and more we see that the the warm air and uh, the season is extending every year by one week or 10 days. And so even the winter season is getting shorter and shorter, but now we are getting even extreme weathers in certain places, rain intensity in many and frequent dry conditions in other places. So it is becoming erratic. Not only the carbon dioxide is a gas that is really uh, bad, but it is also the excess of it, the methane and nitrous oxide, all those play together a role in trapping the the heat and causing the global warming and what we call it the greenhouse effect. Maybe you have heard about it in, in the news lately, but uh, the COP26 it, is, it is stands for Conference of the Parties, is currently now uh, uh, in meetings uh, in uh, Glasgow, United Kingdom, and those are the world re- leaders that they meet every year and uh, since 1992, and their job is to, to commit to do stabilization of these greenhouse effects or concentrations and make sure that we don't exceed, but also to find methods and ways to reduce those gas emissions. And so in 2020, they did not uh, meet because of COVID-19, but uh, I remember uh, one time I was reading uh, one of the news and says, well, the, the, the gas emissions was less because not all factories were working and people working. And so, uh, meaning the, the human activities um, really uh, led to uh, a little bit of uh, not decrease too much, but not to increase it at a higher level. So here is the latest. Uh, I pulled this uh, from the uh, information about the carbon dioxide concentration in November 3rd. And this is uh, an observatory in uh, in Hawaii where they record the carbon dioxide uh, concentration over time. And this is between 1960 and 2020, which is where we are here. And you could see this oscillations, this one, it is going up, up, up. And in fact, it is increasing since 1995 more uh, sharply over here. Uh, if you take that slope versus this slope here. And then if you take that last area between 2016 and 2020, you see it on this graph here. It is telling us again, like this is the carbon dioxide and these are the red ones are the oscillations between one year. So each point is a month. And so it tells you how the oscillations of carbon dioxide increases, decreases. So here at the beginning of the season starts, comes March, April, and then it goes up. All the activities in the summer and the heat and things start going. And then when we come down all the way to the winter, it goes down. And so here is mostly in the winter time where you will see less of those CO2 um, emissions. And mostly they are in the, during the time between April or March through September. And so the, the, the black one is the um, taking each point and dividing it by the average of that year and making that line over there. But if you look here, it is still going up, and that's really uh, difficult to see because if it was about 297 in 1960, and now we are really getting to 413 today, meaning that we what we are expecting is that if we don't work all together uh, to improve uh, and capture that carbon dioxide, then we are going to toast ourselves, our animals, our plants in the near future. So human activities, as I said, uh, such as burning the fossil fuels and clearing the forest, disturbing soils, are all examples of the carbon dioxide release. 
Not to mention also among the agricultural practices, anytime we are using fossil fuels to driving a tractor, tilling the soil, if we are disturbing that organic matter, oxidizing it and go into CO2, into the atmosphere, overgrazing because the soil now is not really having enough time to to recover and it, uh, keeping the grazing of animals there, that will also cause a lot of CO2 going there. Usually, if you are using synthetic fertilizers, it also enhances the, uh, the priming of the organic matter and makes more of the uh, release, active release quickly but it really makes more of the microorganism not doing their enough job to make sure that there is a, um, what you call it, storage of the organic matter. Pesticides, people have been using pesticides and herbicides. Of course, these also result in a significant CO2 release. So when we are talking about soil organic matter, it really impacts the physical structure of the soil. It really impacts the chemical uh, uh, properties as well as the biological properties. And we can say that it is the, uh, if you cannot build the soil organic matter, if you are burning more carbon than you are producing, meaning Keep using it, it is like your bank, and you keep taking money out of it, and if you don't put back anything, you are going to be get in a situation where you will be broke. And so the best way is that we understand this soil organic matter as your capital, as your money, as your currency, and that would be to help you in growing your money, your, your assets, and for your stability. And then you can expand from that. And uh, the best way to measure the soil capital is by understanding and measuring the soil organic matter in the soil. So the soil carbon sequestration, or what we call it carbon farming, it involves implementation of practices that are known to improve the rate of which carbon dioxide is removed. It is the rate, it is how much per time, it is taking that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and convert it into a plant material and or soil organic matter. This is what we consider sequestration. It has to go through those steps. Carbon farming recognize that carbon is your energy currency for all living animals. So we need that carbon as a money, as a currency to work with. The carbon is a medium that really allows the solar energy to go through it and radiates into the food system or the food web uh, through the farm system. The carbon farming focuses on the opportunities of increasing the capacity of farm system, meaning how you increase your capacity by receiving, capturing, putting it, storing it, and release whenever you need for the uh, environment when it is growing. The critical role of soil organic matter, as both can be used as a sink, for the solar energy and a driver for both the soil and the agrosystem dynamics. In other words, we can say you can do a successful carbon farming. I could say I am a grower that I am really establishing and doing a carbon farming only when I have gains more than the losses. And that's, I would say, Yes, I am successful. I could be doing carbon farming, but it, I could be not having more gains that more than the losses. There are always gains and there are always losses, but it is the net that if you have more than what you lose, that's when you are start to store it and make much of it and expand on it. So we thought that it should be through the plants. And when we talk about plants and storing energy, meaning any plant will be taking that light, the energy coming from that sun, 
in in uh, in addition to the carbon dioxide that it is already available in the atmosphere with the water that is available for the plant these three they will uh, change it and through photosynthesis process we call it they make their sugars or the carbohydrates, which is the food that they need, and they emit or spit out the oxygen. In other words, if you are more of a chemical uh, uh, person, you could say, okay, I'm taking the water and taking the carbon dioxide. Here is the energy of the soil going into the chlorophyll of the plant in certain places in the chloroplast, and then it is making the sugar for the whole plant and releasing with farm that oxygen. And so that plant is doing all this kind of factory uh, every single minute, keeping doing that because they wanted to use it. They want to use it to respire. They want to use it to grow. And they want to use it even after to keep that matter into the residue. So these are uh, important to establish soil organic matter and make sure that we are having them in a way that they are living and um, uh, resilient to any changes such as the climate change. So selection of those plants would be very important as well. So when we talk about carbon farming, it is a whole farm approach. It is not one item alone and we say, oh, I am doing this. It, you have to think about it in a whole farm approach. It is a framework where you have to engage the uh, the agro-system processes and that drive the system to change. The carbon farming is recognizing that the solar energy is what drives the farm uh, ecosystem and the carbon is the carrier of that energy to which the farm system, within the farm system. When we talk so many times, we say, well, I'm doing carbon farming and synonymously it is like regenerative agriculture. So regenerative agriculture is where we are considering the soil, the organic matter. We are considering the stability and resiliency. We are considering not using fossil fuel based fertilizers or pesticides or uh, uh, avoiding, avoiding the the tillage uh, or reducing as minimum the tillage using uh, systems that can add rather than keep taking from the harvest and not re, uh, um, adding back to the, the, to the soil itself. This is what it is about uh, carbon farming. Mainly, uh, when we talk about boosting the carbon sequestration on organic farms, uh, we are talking about conservation tillage, like I mentioned earlier, that as much as I can uh, avoid these drastic and intensive uh, uh, tillage uh, practices or um, number of tillage that we do, we could probably uh, get by a, a rotational and uh, we can reduce the and conserve by using different equipment that we used to use long time during the the industrial era. Uh, cover crops, we all know uh, for the past at least 20 years, uh, NRCS has been advocating and educating people that uh, keeping the soil surface covered is an important uh, role in keeping your organic matter uh, uh, there because you are recycling the nutrients, you are keeping the, the residues, you are keeping the roots there, and you are not uh, allowing much of that soil to be eroded by wind or to be intensively um, uh, tilled. Uh, also, organic matters, uh, organic amendments, such as using compost or manure, Research has found that it is better to use compost rather than directly uh, application of manure, and it is the quickest or gives you the shortest period of time to reach your goal of uh, uh, what you call it, building or uh, storing more of the organic. This means that when we talk about organic amendments, 
we need to rehabilitate the degraded soil, uh, increasing the storage, enhancing water holding capacity, and providing more nutrients to the plant. Livestock manure and green mulches, green mulches like whenever we cut the plants and leave them there or when we have uh, a green manure, which is a way, considered sometimes a waste, it is a part of the soil amendments. But we found also composting them is really much better uh, to compost those wastes rather than put them as is, as land application because when you leave the manure as is or the green mulches, they are exposed to microorganisms that they can emit some gas emissions relatively to the decompose that it is coming from a compost. It doesn't mean that compost doesn't release uh, gas emissions, but it is very little compared to the applications of a freshly cut or it is uh, a material that it is uh, manure that has not been composted yet. So we have to think of how we should be, um, the, the resources that we have, what they can cause uh, for the environment, how they can be used best to improve the, the fastest way to reach the, uh, the storage of this carbon into the soil and improve the dynamics the ecosystem uh, altogether. So in the organic amendments, the composting process, it is really important because what it does, it takes that nitrogen and complex it with the organic molecules. This means it is slowing the decomposition rate and associated nitrogen mineralization, meaning it is not keeping that nitrogen to go away as fast as possible. The nitrogen, if you all know about nitrogen is already existing as 78% uh, in the atmosphere, but the nitrogen that we have in the waste or manure or green uh, manure, it is all nitrogen uh, that it is a precursor for the uh, nitrous oxide, which is one of the gases that we are avoiding to have building in the atmosphere. We know that it is very potent, the nitrous oxide, and it is worse than carbon dioxide. It is 298 times worse than the carbon dioxide on a 100-year time scale. So we have to be extremely careful that when we think about what we are doing as organic growers, or even if you are transitioning to organic, or if you are doing things on a small scale or a large scale, which method is really you are contributing to? Are you contributing to the storage or you are contributing to the emissions. So these are information is very important for you. So although, as I mentioned, that uh, composting does have some complexation and a little bit of gas emission, but it's nowhere comparable to those ones that they are uh, when you have the direct applications of the manure or the uh, green waste to the soil. It is better that we apply it as a compost because it can lead us to better productivity and sustainability. Another way to think about is the landfills and the anaerobic lagoons. We have many growers, especially in Pennsylvania, where they have a lot of livestock and also there are places where they have livestock in the Midwest. And if they have uh, the, the, the lagoons, it is uh, really what it does, it's continued to emit these uh, uh, methane and nitrous oxide. So it is um, important for us that we know that lagoons, that material, if we, we have one grower, he took that material and he just spread it directly onto the soil. And then um, what he did is that allowed that more of the nitrous oxide to get up to the atmosphere, although he's an organic farmer. But we have to be very careful because also the food waste and yard waste, if you put them in landfills, they go under anaerobic conditions and they transfer to and convert it into methane, unless that methane is an enclosed 
spot that it is not released to the atmosphere, but it is used for other resources, then we are more into a way that we are conserving these gases to a better use. So we have to be very careful on how we should go with that. The carbon farming is successful, as I mentioned, when you have gains more than the losses. Here you have some of these additions. We can uh, check that, like I have more root exudates because I have more roots there that they are having more of the uh, microorganisms that are going uh, symbiotically with them. Plant residues, I keep more of the plant residues when I harvest rather than I take the whole crop out. The, the manure that it is really composted is much better than, although some people still uh, use manures, but if it is composted, it's much better. However, if we reduce all those uh, uh uh, losses through respiration and tillage and uh, erosion, then we are more uh, having a net balance to have more of the organic matter in the soil. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio, and today we are listening to a presentation on carbon farming and carbon sequestration given by Dr. Gladys Zanati of the Rodale Institute. This presentation was recorded at MOFCA's 2021 Farmer to Farmer Conference. So, what are the factors that contribute to additions or decomposition of the soil organic matter? These could include temperature, rainfall, or texture. And let's talk about the temperature here. So, the cold regions like Maine or the Arctic areas higher than Maine, there is no much organic matter added due to a short season of growing plants. However, there is a slow decomposition rate due to cold temperatures. The rainfall has an impact on whether we add or decompose the soil organic matter. So you could see that in arid areas where there's very little of uh, re uh, rainfall there, the addition is extremely low and even the decomposition. But in areas where you have more rainfall, you have more plant residue returns, and these returns are restricted restricting the air, so you will have less decomposition and losses because it is going into an aerobic situation. And so with those, you can tell how your answers were based on this information. For example, the texture, those who answered, like define texture soils containing high percentage of clay and silt, and they tend to have the highest amounts of soil organic matter. So the coarse textures such as sand or sandy loam would be lesser to accumulate that high organic matter. So you could see that if you are having soil that is more texture sand, you have maybe less than 1% of soil organic matter. And if it is in a loamy soil, you will have 2 to 3%, but those that are clayey, you will have more of the soil organic matter. And that's because the clay is very fine particles and they are compacted. And as we said, that those micropores, microaggregates that work with the clay will not allow much of those uh, disturbances that are or uh, entrances by microorganisms to go there and uh, decompose them. And that's how the, those texture or rainfall or temperature could contribute to the way that you are adding or decomposing soil organic matter. All right, so let's talk about the drainage. So if it is well-drained, meaning you have more of the air um, available in the soil, more than the water, and this means what? You have more oxygen, and meaning that you are oxygenating the soil organic matter. And so, meaning you will have the microorganisms would be able to use that material there to oxidize the soil organic matter and decompose it with their enzymes. So, well drain doesn't mean that you, it is good, but it doesn't mean over a long period of time you are going to build or add much of your soil organic matter because of those bigger aggregates that are filled with air. 
On the other hand, the poorly drained, less aeration, meaning you are going under anaerobic conditions in that soil. Most of that airspace is filled for a very long time. It will be very, very slow to decompose. And all that plant material that it is made of lignin or uh, organic material, that it is made of lignin, which is pretty difficult to, um, to be decomposed, are not decomposed because they are not accessible. And so most of the time you will see that wetlands and swamps for a very long time, they will build the soil organic matter. And that's what you will see in muck soils that they have been over many, many years, hundreds of years, that they were under like wetlands or uh, swamps and they have about 20% soil organic matter. That's the landscape also. Those soils that are in the depressions, meaning at the bottom of the slope, uh, they will have more organic matter. And this is, everybody got it right, where because all that erosion of the smaller particles of the silt and the clay are coming all the way down with the water flooding down there uh, from the uh, uphill and leaving the uphill eroded with the bigger size of the particles and having more air to be going there and more porosity. And so here I will show you, like last week, we had a, an event at Rodale Institute where there were about nine uh, soil pits were dug. There is a, a project with uh, Dalval uh, University, and um, they have a project where they want to uh, take different areas uh, at Rodale because they have been uh, managed differently, let's say. And they brought their students uh, there to show them about the different soil profiles and how different management practice could lead to that. And so here on, on the left, I took this photo from a colleague of mine uh, when his kids came um, checking these pets, our uh, young scientists, we call them. So this is at the top of the hill, and you can see the bigger particles stays there, but at the bottom of the slope where we have the apple orchard down there, this is where all the organic matter have been over the past 50 years building over that soil. And you can see it is like day and night between these two. It's the same orchard, but one at the top and one at the bottom. We have also another pit that was close to the uh, forest soil. You could see how beautiful it is. That has a lot of dark material. This is all the organic material. And you can see at least a foot and a half probably that is building over time because it is not disturbed as much as an agriculture area where we had disturbance. And you could see that it is only a small area here where the roots are coming. And probably you can see some of them here, which is about a foot or a foot and a half. But that tells you that the, the way of managing and the, the source of the soil, how it was uh, building that or the, the landscape could make a big difference in the carbon farming. We can talk about grasses and broadleaf vegetation. If we take any annual grass over there, like wheat over here, and this is another wheat, which is the Carenza, and that's having, you could see in the first year, these are both wheat, but this has at least uh, five times length in one year of roots. And you, we said that the roots are really important because these are the ones that they work with the microorganisms. And without them, it would be so difficult to build uh, the coverage of the plants and also to have more of storage of the organic matter at a higher rate. So if you look over a year and a half or two years, that root of the um, annual grain or annual wheat 
uh, didn't even go more than uh, six inches, but this guy is really having a lot of roots. And this gives you a lot of biomass that increases the population of the microorganisms that they can provide more. So in other words, we have also to think about whether we should see, think as annually or we can think uh, with including perennial grasses. But also we can think also looking at broadleaf. How many of you also have used black uh, isosum for landscaping? You see how much uh, root can do there versus any of the grasses that we have. And so this can be another way of, if you want to improve or mitigate a, an area that uh, it is pretty low in the, in the organic matter, this can be one of the methods to choose the vegetation that you want. Even the, the blue stem, the big blue stem is pretty known for its uh, length and the width of those um, uh, roots there. So these are information that really should be able to, to take and uh, use in your farming um, operation and in the approach that you want to take uh, if you want uh, to contribute to carbon farming. Those grasslands, rangelands, people who are already having, like in the Midwest and areas where they have grassland, they have a great potential to use them as reservoirs for organic matter. In fact, um, they are the biome, part of the biome that uh, experience seasonal uh, water deficits. So sometimes you, when the plant is really in a situation where uh, there is less, uh, not much rainfall, so it gives a, a way to the plant that they have to explore more into the in, the in the soil profile. And that makes more exploration to improve more of the biomass of the root there and bringing more of that plant material. But also they go into situations where um, they, they die and come back, they die and die, come back. And meaning that cycle of uh, dying and coming back, it will really help to build that organic material in the soil. That would be good if we are managing grasslands pretty well. But if we are not really managing those rangelands pretty well, we are contributing intensively to the carbon dioxide emissions, and that will affect about in, uh, in the production as well as in the leading to land degradation over time. The type of vegetation we talk about, the grassland versus forest, we see deeper and more soil organic matter under the grassland because it has extensive root system and it turnover of the roots that makes it dying and coming back and exploring more area in the soil profile. Acid conditions of the soil also is another thing that we need to think. Some uh, areas that they have more acidic soils some areas that they have more uh, neutral to alkaline. And so these soils may vary in how much the rate of accumulation. And because most of the acid soils, you will see that they prevent to, uh, uh, or limit the uh, earthworm activities there. And so because they are limiting that activity, it will really initiate more of the building of the organic matter rather than distributing that organic matter all the way to the soil and make it diluted, but they are making it more sticking into the area there and not to be chopped and used by the uh, earthworms. If we are looking about what is more important, the above ground or the root for the soil organic matter distribution, we think that always the higher percent of roots contribute more and by weight, and it is more resistant because they are in the area where we call them the dead or the very dead. Then the above ground that they are exposed to the microorganism, to oxygen and to temperature, they are exposed to erosion, those all uh, different areas. So when we compare above ground residues, many crop roots that have higher amounts of lignin they will have a slow decomposing material. 
So it is important that also if we are mitigating an area and we want to get it in the future to be used, is that we select the plants that they have more lignin in their roots so it can provide more of a slower decomposition. Example here, the oats are one of those that they have lignin. And so after uh, one year, one third of that material on the surface remain, which is about 30%, let's say, and about 43% of the root organic remain. However, if you compare the oats, which is a cereal, uh, a grass to a um, hairy veg, which is a legume, you can see after the incorporation of that in the spring, only 13% is left as a residue on the surface. However, after five months, however, 50% of the root of the hairy veg is still there and it is really contributing to the organic both root residues of this crop contribute much more to the particulate organic matter. And when maybe you have heard uh, people talking about the particulate organic matter, meaning the particles, like you remember I said about the macro and the medium, the medium and the larger particles. And so these are the particles where usually they occupy most of those residues that they are in the living and the dead. So it is um, really where we have the particulate organic matter. So the management options that we need to increase soil organic matter. And I say here the new management options are needed uh, in order to maintain and restore. I'm not saying new, it has to be very, very new, but we have to be new in a way that we have to think differently and think differently in a way that we are working towards that uh, facing, uh, capturing that carbon rather than in, uh, producing it. Increasing the carbon, organic carbon, can have a tremendous potential to uh, increase the water holding capacity and increase resilience to drought, rainfall variability, and soil erosion, as we have mentioned. If we are using the benefits from organic matter, we can reap even more by improving nutrient availability because there would be more of cation exchange capacity and there would be organic matter in, attached to the clay material. And we can also have improved nutrient retention because those plants would be able to have their roots going into those particles and also having those nutrients available for them to be taken up. The improved soil health associated with increased soil organic matter, and at the end, it will increase your production. It will increase your returns of currency and money, and it will help also the system to mitigate the climate change through increased plant carbon capture and carbon sequestration. I'm CJ Walk, your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, which can be heard at 4 p.m. on the second Thursday of every month, right here and only here on your community radio station, WERU 89.9 FM and WERU.org. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more great programming. You're listening to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org. Welcome to 2022 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. We're calling on the Senate to have that debate because we want to pass the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. We want to pass the Freedom to Vote Act. We know how much we have fought for.
Chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Joyce Beatty, called on the Senate Wednesday to pass a pair of voting rights bills. President Joe Biden meets with Senate Democrats today as pressure grows to drop the filibuster, requiring 60 votes to advance legislation. The president spoke in Georgia this week in favor of allowing a simple majority vote on the measures, but currently Democrats Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and all 50 GOP senators oppose changing the rules. Republican South Dakota Senator John Thune. I urge all of my Democrat colleagues to resist this blatant power grab by the Democrat leadership and preserve our long-standing commitment to 